We've got three announcements to remember, and I can't remember what, what the first one was. Uh, no, the first one is that we're going to have a family night on Friday, I mean on Saturday night, the 20th of, um, of May, which is also Armed Forces Day. So we're going to do two or three things that night, and we're going to eat, which we always do quite well here. Nobody has to work on that, improve their eating skills. But we're going to eat, we're going to see a film, God is Not Dead 1, and we'll talk about it afterwards. I'll try to put some questions together beforehand so that people know what to look for, what to think about as we watch it. Uh, it's focusing on it's another apologetics thing, but we also have uh, a guest, a guy I work out with at Jim, who's in the Texas National Guard. I invited him to come, and he sounds like he's got a really interesting job and is about to go to a really interesting place. So um, he's going to talk a little bit so we can honor the military, those who are presently serving in the military. And then the other, what's the other announcement, Alan? Oh, men's prayer breakfast. Men's prayer breakfast on the morning of uh, of May the 20th at 7.30. And so uh, we always have a, a good time of discussion. Uh, sometimes it's current events, sometimes it's biblical, but it's a good time for the men to get together, pray for the church, and time to get to know each other. So that's uh, put that on your on your calendars. I think that's about it. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, so that God the Holy Spirit can uh, fill us with his word and we have something for recall in time of need. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very thankful that we have another day to serve you, that we've had some beautiful weather this week, and especially a little bit cooler weather as we get closer to the summer. Every day of cool weather is very much appreciated. Father, we thank you that we can be here tonight to study your word, continue to think about uh, how to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And Father, as we think through these concepts, study the scripture, help us to understand, help us to um, come to a, a, a more thoughtful way of talking with people about the gospel, presenting the gospel, and really uh, making sure that they understand what grace is, what the gospel is, what the need for the gospel is, and not just, uh, not just sort of uh, drive-by evangelism or going through a set procedure. Uh, every person's different, and we need to learn how to talk to people from where they are, just as you deal with us every time with where we are. And we pray that you'd help us to understand these things. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Now, Tuesday night, we're talking about the will of God. We're not going to talk about it tonight. I should have brought this the other night, but didn't. It talks a little bit about the will of God. There was a Presbyterian church in a small town that called a meeting about what to do about squirrels that had gotten into the church. After a lot of prayer and consideration, they decided that uh, the squirrels were predestined, and they were there, and so they shouldn't interfere with the sovereign will of God. See how this just illustrates what we've been learning. At the Baptist church, the squirrels really liked that baptistry. So the deacons decided to put a water slide on the baptistry and let the squirrels slide into the baptistry and drown, and that would take care of their squirrel problem. The trouble is the squirrels learned how to swim, and they were having too much fun. Twice as many squirrels showed up the next week. The Methodist church also had a squirrel problem, and they decided that they were not in a position to harm any of God's precious creatures. So they humanely 
trapped the squirrels and set them free near the Baptist church. Two weeks later, the squirrels were back when the Baptists took down the water slide. Now, the Catholic church came up with a very creative solution. They baptized all the squirrels and consecrated them as members of the church. So they only showed up on Easter and Christmas. Now, not much was heard from the Jewish synagogue. They caught one squirrel, circumcised him, and no more squirrels showed up. All right, open your Bibles to Exodus 4. Exodus 4. Now, we're continuing a study out of our study of 1 Peter, what it means to give an answer for the hope that is is How are we to do it? It's not just doing it. It is how to do it, a right thing must be done in a right way. And that's really the issue in what is more broadly known as apologetics. Now, I gave you all a handout tonight. I was asked last week if I could uh, put together a glossary for some of the terms that I've been using in apologetics. So you can look at that and see a definition for apologetics, and you can see definitions for other terms like rationalism and empiricism and mysticism and presupposition and a few others. I'll be adding to it, and I already know a couple of things I need to add to revise a couple of those definitions and uh, and that. So that may help you think through things when you hear me use words that aren't uh, the most user-friendly. Now, what we're, I'm doing now in this stage, uh, we looked at what happened in Genesis 1, then we went to Genesis 3, then we went to... Um, That's where we stopped last time. Now, tonight what I want to do is jump forward a little bit, uh, talk a little bit about Job. I don't think I got to Job last week. Job is something we can cover fairly quickly. Uh, But I'm trying to take these in chronological order. And, of course, Job comes chronologically about the time of the patriarchs. So around the time of Abraham and Isaac, is when Job, the events in Job, uh, took place. And then that would be the third confrontation between God and man. And then the fourth is going to be the Exodus. And I don't think I'll get past that, um, that tonight. So we're looking at the fact that whenever we're involved in answering somebody's questions, objections, misrepresentations, accusations uh, to, about Christianity, we're giving a reasoned, thought-out answer to expose why Christianity is true and anything other than Christianity is false, biblical Christianity. And so we see in each of these examples how God confronts paganism. So just by way of review, these are the six questions I'm basically trying to work through with us. What is apologetics? It is simply put, defending the truth of biblical Christianity. But there's a lot more to it than that. Some people think that it's just Christian evidences, but it's a much broader area than Christian evidences. It involves uh, a lot of areas of how we present the truth of, of Christianity and how we answer questions. So that leads us to the second question we study. Why should we learn about apologetics? Because First Peter 3.15 mandates it for every believer that we should be able to give an answer. When we talk about apologetics, sometimes it seems like we're talking about a fairly sophisticated uh, argument, debate, confrontation, explanation with people who are very knowledgeable and bring to the bring up a lot of sophisticated objections and accusations and, and wrong ideas. If you spend any time watching uh, the Discovery Channel, History Channel, PBS, some of these other channels, Uh, you'll know that they're, I mean, it's just amazing. I look up the people that they get, that that show up, that they're, these are people who are on the far left of the left. They they get people, have some of the wackiest ideas about Christianity, none of whom assume presuppositionally, that's what a presupposition is. Their presupposition is, I don't know what happened 
but I know it wasn't what the Bible says happened. That can't be historically, literally true. That That's what they bring to the text. That's how they look at everything in the Bible. That that Those are the glasses that they put on when they read the Bible. So that is their presupposition. That is the assumption they bring when they start uh, talking about the Bible. But it's interesting because you'll talk to people who may not have more than a high school education, but they spend a lot of time watching the History Channel, and they know a lot of stuff about the Christianity that disproves it. It can't be what you and I believe it is. And so they'll start asking questions. So we need to be uh, up to speed on how to answer some of those things, and we'll, we'll get there. Right now I'm dealing with broader issues. So, And then some people object to apologetics mostly because they're ill-informed, misinformed, and don't and they they've give, been given a distorted view of what apologetics is and then i've spent most of the time recently talking uh, answering the fourth question which is it's what i've heard some people say well the bible doesn't use apologetics why should we and so i'm showing that everything in the bible is is sort of has a has a double edge almost like it's a double edged sword who knew um there is one side that is offensive and one side that is defensive. One side that is presenting the truth and the other is a side that, that is defending the truth or presenting a case against non-Christian paganism, non-Christian theism. So the Bible does that again and again. Then I'm showing the answer to verse uh, to point five is the difference between apologetics and Christian evidence is Christian evidence is sort of a subset of apologetics and then hopefully we'll learn inductively as we're going through these examples in scripture how we defend support and argue that Christianity is the one and only truth so that's where we are now I last time I put this slide up here and the only reason I brought it back was because at the bottom I actually had two people ask me this question, said, what's that at the bottom that says Notaro 34? That's Tom Notaro's book. I had mentioned it class before. That's called Van Til and the Use of Evidence. And it's on page 34. So that's just, I'm just citing a source that he points out that these were Van Til's assumptions coming out of Romans 1, 18 to 23. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up again is because the the fourth view that I have in the chart that I'll show you in a, right now is all, that I emphasize is the counterpart to a revelational epistemology, our revelational view of knowledge that our starting point is revelation. Our starting point isn't first principles of reason or axioms of reason. Our starting point isn't sense perceptions. Our starting point isn't the inner private intuitive thoughts. Our starting point is revelation. We don't compromise that. And that is predominantly known as presuppositionalism, that we, pre, we, we emphasize the presuppositions of, of, um, of Scripture. But what happens is that the term evidentialism for the second school of thought is a little bit misleading for some people because um, we everybody believes in using evidences. It's how you use evidences. And so it's, it's like, um, I've used the analogy in the past, it's like uh, the, the evidences are our weapons. A soldier can have a grenade launcher, he can have surface-to-air missiles, he can have... Uh, automatic weapons, he can have um, a pistol, he can have a knife, he can have hand grenades. How he uses those is determined by strategy. These schools of thought, classic apologetics, evidentialism, fideism, and presuppositionalism are strategies. Now, not every strategy is right. And a, a way of going about how you do what you do can be wrong. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. So evidence is important. 
to look at how evidence is used. And we saw that God used evidence when he confronted Adam and Eve. He used the evidence to challenge them to look at what had happened. He used the, the evidence. He, he asked them the question, well, wh- where are you? Why are you making them think about what had happened, the things that had occurred historically? Now, for them, it was a history that was that morning or the day before, but it was an immediate history as opposed to a history that was 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 years ago. So evidence is important, and we're going to see that more in the examples I talk about tonight, and we'll see it again uh, next week. If depending on how fast or how slow I go through through this material, I want to definitely get us get th- get us through Moses and the Exodus tonight, and I don't think we're going to get into Elijah, but that's very important. God believes in evidences. What what verse would you go to in the Bible that would substantiate the fact that God believes evidences are important? It's a key verse in one of the Gospels. You've heard me quote it hundreds of times. These are written. These what are written? That's John, um, what is that, John 20, 31. John 20, 30 says, Jesus did many other signs. These are written. These what are written? These signs, the seven plus the sign of a resurrection in John, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So God believes in evidence. Now, where does God prove his existence when he's talking to an unbeliever? He doesn't. See, the Bible presupposes the existence of God. And God presupposes that the unbeliever knows he exists because that's what Romans 1 tells us. Romans 1, 18 to 23, the, 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 the heavens demonstrate the power, the invisible attributes of God so that, that men are without excuse. And the knowledge of God is evident within them. So, so that's one of the things that the presuppositionalist school emphasizes is we don't have to go to some neutral, neutral um, um, area of thought like reason or logic that's the first group or evidences that's the second group or history that's the second group we don't have to find some common ground that is neutral the common ground for the presuppositionalist is that that person that you're talking to according to the bible knows god exists you don't have to prove it to them you may have to do something that that tweaks their god consciousness and brings it to the surface. But you don't have to prove that God exists because they already know it. And and that gives us great confidence when we're when we're witnessing. So evidence is 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 very very important. It's how you use evidence. Now let me let me point out another difference here. <clears throat> Evidentialists believe in the importance of evidence. So do presuppositionalists. But the evidence that the evidentialist goes to, the way he uses the evidence, only gets him to a high level of probability on the existence of God or the resurrection or anything else. And they'll admit that in their writings, that it only gets, they may get 99.99999% probability that God exists, but it's not 100%. So that's one of the problems that if your if your if your common ground is logic or your common ground is evidence or history or science, the facts of creation, whatever. If it's not what the Bible says that they already know God exists, then all that's going to get you is a high level of probability. That's that's the re- not the result of that the evidence is wrong, it's that they're using it wrong. Okay, that's strategy. So that that's that's one area, uh, one area that is that is important. The other area that's important, and I spent a lot of time the last two classes talking about facts. That every fact is what it is, because God created every fact. So when we look at an apple, or we I had an avocado last week. One of the attributes of the existence of an apple is that it's a creation of God 
and it'll never be anything other than an apple. It's not going to evolve into an orange or a fig or something else. For a Bible-believing Christian, you're, you're never going to compromise on that. When you look at an apple, you can agree on 999 attributes, but it's that 1,000th attribute that you're going to disagree with the unbeliever about. So the fact isn't neutral. Okay, creation, the facts of creation aren't neutral because he has interpreted the facts to be part of a, of a, of a universe that is totally the result of time plus chance. It's, it's just an accident that happened. And you look at things, and they're not. So the facts of creation are viewed differently by an unbeliever. They're not neutral. But for the classic apologist and for the evidentialist and for the mystic, that, that, that thing out there is neutral, so you can appeal to it. It's the same thing for the Christian as well as the non-Christian. And so you, now, now the difference is there's some non-Christians you're going to talk to who aren't smart enough to realize that. So you're going to get away with misusing evidence. You're going to get away with giving them arguments the wrong way, and they're going to go, yeah, that's right. That works. God, the Holy Spirit. Many of us were slaved by, saved through really sloppy presentations of the gospel. There are hundreds of th thousands of people who are saved by sloppy presentations, but that doesn't excuse sloppiness. And so what we're trying to do is just up our game a little bit to, under, to be better in the way in which we handle, handle the Scripture. So, and here's the other slide I've been using. It, think of witnessing to your neighbor, witnessing to your coworker, witnessing to a family member in the same way that you would witness to uh, somebody in the rainforest of Brazil or in Colombia or in Africa or in India or in Pakistan, that you're going to a different culture, except instead of an African Muslim pagan spiritist culture, it's your next-door neighbor who's a spiritist, animist, new ager, okay? And you have to learn to talk their, talk their language, understand their culture so that, so that you can communicate truth without compromising with, with their culture. So that's what we're trying to do. What's the common ground that we appeal to? And they're going to view history. They're going to view logic and experience. They may view it differently than you do, but if they come out of a background where they've been taught Sunday school, where they've had some church exposure, where their parents were fairly conservative, they won't think consistently with their pagan presuppositions. There are a lot of people like that. I think that's what happened if you saw um, Case for Christ. I think that's what happens with Lee Strobel. He's got some real strong modernist-type assumptions undergirding his approach so that as he looks at the evidence, it convinces him, even though the evidence isn't neutral. But it's interesting how, the, how if you saw the film or read the book, he's working in a newsroom as a, as a reporter working for what is the Chicago Tribune. And he's, there, there's somebody who's sitting at a desk near him, an old, older guy, who turns out later on you find out that this guy's a Christian, probably a Baptist, and and he's he's all upset because his wife's become a Christian and he doesn't know what to do and he wants to prove Christianity's wrong. And this other guy says, Well do it. See if you can do it. Go out there. I can give you some pointers. Go try. That guy's functioning like a presuppositionalist. Because he's, he's, he's going to, in that process, he knows that what's going to happen with Strobel is he's going, to, he's going to realize the inadequacy of his own assumptions about life. Very interesting how that, the interplay of that in, that in that episode. Okay, so what we've done is we've looked at Genesis 1. We looked at Genesis 2. We looked at these, these um, examples. And I finished up with going through Genesis last week, but I wanted to point out some of the comparisons between what we saw in Genesis 3 and God's confrontation with Adam and Eve. Think of it as 
a providing a pattern for how somebody, in this case it's God, gives us an example of how you confront pagan rebellion. So what we learn is that people already knew they were sinners. That's exactly what, what Romans tells us. We also learn that people are not morally or spiritually neutral. Adam and Eve were not morally or spiritually neutral. So when you're talking to somebody, don't make the mistake of assuming that they're spiritually neutral. That happens a lot. That's part of being a sound presuppositionalist, is that when you talk to them, don't expect them to be neutral toward whatever evidence you're using. Because what happens is that evidence is tweaking his God consciousness, and for a long time he's been mastering the skills of suppressing his God consciousness, and it makes him angry when when God starts uh, messing with him. Okay, so so don't make the mistake of assuming that that they're neutral. That's sort of the assumption you also see in the case for Christ is that, that Lee Strobel has been an investigative reporter and he's just been given a big prize. And at the beginning, he's awarded this prize. And it's sort of his motto is that follow the evidence. The evidence will lead you to the truth. And that's the evidentialist motto, that just give people the evidence and they, they can come to the truth on their own because the evidence is neutral. But we know that in the spiritual realm, the evidence isn't neutral. So they're not neutral. Also, we saw that God uses rhetorical questions to expose human flaws. That's a good tool. Jesus uses, somebody said, I don't know, I'd have to go back and it'd take a lot of time to count it, but somebody said that, that if you go through the Gospels, Jesus asks over 200 questions. Questioning is an excellent methodology, and don't be in a hurry to answer it for the other person. Because when you ask a question, they may need to struggle with it for a while. And that's the idea in, in teaching, is to help people come to an understanding of their truth uh, for themselves, not just to spoon feed them. And then we see that God uses evidence. He uses the evidence of creation, general revelation. He uses historic facts. He uses various evidences to expose mankind's sin, rebellion, and responsibility. Something else we have going for us in our favor is what Jesus talks about in John 16. He says to the disciples, "Never." this is, remember, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all take place the night before he goes to the cross. It's all part of what we pull together as the upper room discourse. And right after this, John 16, he prays in John 17, and then he gets arrested in John 18. So this is right at the that final night before Jesus gets arrested and goes through his trials and goes to the cross. He's giving final instructions to the disciples and for the first time he's teaching them about doctrines that will be important in the church age he says nevertheless i tell you the truth it's to your advantage that i go away for if i don't go away the helper will not come to you that's a reference to the holy spirit but if i depart i will send him to you and when he has come, see, the Holy Spirit's never functioned like this in all of human history. You don't see it in the Old Testament. Job doesn't have the Holy Spirit helping him figure out his suffering. David doesn't have the Holy Spirit strengthening him spiritually when he's in the wilderness. He has the Holy Spirit for the purpose of leadership decisions in Israel, but not for the spiritual life. So, Jesus says, when he has come, what's he going to do? He's going to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Of sin because they don't believe in me. So, when you're witnessing to somebody, I, I've always said this, you need to have three things that are part of your gospel presentation. Number one, that sin has separated you from God. You're a sinner. You, you don't say you're a sinner because you're beating them over the head with the fact that they're a sinner. 
But they have to understand that they're being saved from something. They're being saved from the penalty of sin and from being in a state of spiritual death and corruption. And they don't believe in Jesus. That's the sin that's really being pointed out by the Holy Spirit. They haven't trusted in Jesus. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, that um, emphasizing that they don't have righteousness so they can't get to heaven. And of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. You have a judgment of Satan at the time of the cross. So God the Holy Spirit is the one who is working in and through our evangelism to convict people of their need of a Savior, their need for righteousness, that they're spiritual dead and their need need to have, have spiritual life. So when we're talking to an unbeliever and they're asking us a question like, why in the world are you a Christian? I mean, Christians are hateful people. Christians just despise, they, 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 they hate homosexuals, they, they hate liberals, they uh, hate people who are anti-Second Amendment. Uh, they're, just, they're, they're just horrible people. They're, they're, they just want to impose their morality on everybody. Why in the world do you believe that? So how do you handle that? Well, what do you think Christians really are? Start asking them questions. What do you think a Christian really is and what he believes? Have you ever read the Bible? Um, things, things like that start trying to focus him on some, on, on some facts. But in the process, there's two things going on. Number one, as you talk to him, that person or her that person is in the image of God. And as you're presenting scriptural truth to them, there's something related to that imageness that knows that God exists, and that is being tweaked. And it's also being, it's being tweaked by the content of what you're saying, but also there's the Holy Spirit who's at work. So what that does is it takes all the pressure off of us. We don't have to convince them of the truth. It's not our role to convince them of the truth of Christianity. It's our role to present the truth of Christianity and to do so in a way that that enables them to understand what the issues are. And it's really helpful to ask that question. Do you understand what I just said? Can you repeat it back to me? Sometimes I felt like doing that in church. Okay, we're going to stop 15 minutes early, and I'm going to start asking you questions about what, you, what I just taught you, but I don't have the guts to do that because you all don't understand anything I say. I am amazed sometimes when people say, oh, well, I remember when you said X, Y, or Z. I'm like, I never said that. <laughs> uh, it's almost like the time when I was in, went with Jim Myers, first time we went to uh, Kazakhstan, and this side of the room were Russian-only speakers, and this side of the room were Kazakh-only speakers. And so I, I, would, I would speak a sentence, utter a sentence, and then the Russian translator would translate it into Russian, and the Kazakh translator would translate it into Russian. But about the fourth day, we realized or there was a problem because the, the lady who was translating into Kazakh was the wife of the pastor of the church, and she had to go with some of the students down to the visa office to get the visas, their visas straightened out. And the only person who's, who could translate was a, a Kazakh speaker who spoke Russian, but he didn't speak English. So I would utter, uh, speak a sentence, utter a sentence. The guy would translate it into Russian, and he really wasn't a good translator. He would translate it into Russian. And then this other this student would translate it from Russian into Kazakh. Only God knows what they heard. Probably had nothing whatsoever to do with what I was trying to teach. So it's sometimes you wonder what is really being heard out there. All right. Where were we? So we've got the Holy Spirit. Isn't that great? It's not our job to convince people of the truth. It's our job to give them as clear an explanation so God the Holy Spirit can use that uh, to convict them. And what we see again and again, going back to the point of evidence, is God uses evidence. Again and again and again, he doesn't operate outside of history. He operates in history. We have the evidence of the creation, that it is the heavens that declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. 
Romans 1.18, that, that by looking at creation, people understand uh, the invisible attributes of God. They understand his majesty and his power. So there's something communicated non-verbally there. There's the fall. Uh, there's evidence of who God is. There's evidence of his grace. All of that comes through at the fall. There's evidence of what Adam and Eve did. Then there's the flood. And then there's the exodus. All of these are, are acts of God in history that provide evidence that he is who he says he is. So it's how you use the evidence that's important. It's not evidence versus presuppositions. That's, that's a complete misrepresentation. Now, what's interesting is when you go through the Old Testament, how many times God sets up historical markers. So history is important to God. And, and evidentialists will say, well, if we go to history, we can prove the Bible. Problem there is they're treating history as something that is neutral. But a historical fact to a believer is going to be different from that same historical fact for an unbeliever because he views it from his pagan framework. But look at these things that happen in the Old Testament. In Joshua 4, after the Israelites cross into the Promised Land, God parts the Jordan River, they cross in, and then Joshua sets up 12 stones uh, in the midst of the Jordan in a place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they're there to this day. What does that last line mean? They are there to this day. The writer of Joshua is saying, you don't believe me? Just walk yourself down to the Jordan and you're going to see that pile of 12 stones. Now, they're not little stones like this. They would have been big 20, 30, 40 pound rocks that were set there and piled up in a, in a huge rock cairn. And they were there to stand as a historical testimony to what had happened 50, 100, 200, 300, 1,000 years earlier. Because God only has to do something once. And then the evidence of it resonates through history. God doesn't have to do miracles every year or every century or every 1,000 years. He can just do it once, and it's good enough for all time. In Joshua 6.25... Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day. So we know that the guy who wrote Joshua wrote it pretty close to the events because Rahab is still alive. And he says, go talk to her. She'll tell you what happened at Jericho. Historical evidence. And then in Joshua 7.26, when Achan has sinned, uh, after the, he was executed, they raised over him a great heap of stones still there to this day. Go look for them. This really happened. God works in history, and there's evidence of it. In Judges 6.24, Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it's still in Oprah of the Abizurites. Go look at it. Isn't that neat? Now, some of that stuff's not there anymore, but some of those remains, we can go look. That's what you do in archaeology. You can find some really neat stuff that shows that God works in history and the stories of the Bible were historically true. The cities were actually there. People lived there. Things happened there. You can't do that with the Book of Mormon. You can't find any of those cities, any of those people. They, they didn't exist anywhere in the world. There's no historical, archaeological evidence that any of that ever happened. But the Bible's a book of history, so you can go find those places. Now we're going to look at Exodus. Now, Exodus is interesting. Now, I didn't put it into this. I just realized I didn't put this definition into the, uh, um, into the glossary. It's the word polemic. A polemic is a verbal refutation of somebody's position, okay? It is an argument against another view. It is presenting evidence that somebody else's beliefs are wrong. Now, that's a bit of a problem for a lot of postmodern Americans because postmodern Americans have been hearing about uh, how understanding we need to be and how we can't be judgmental 
uh, toward what other people believe. And of course, if you say something like Jesus is the only way, you've just made a negative hostile judgment against everybody who doesn't believe that. You just said they're going to hell. See, when you say, you believe in Jesus, he's the only way to heaven, people go, great, I'm going to believe in Jesus. The other, the other side says, you're so mean, you're condemning everybody to the lake of fire. You're just so hostile, you're just mean-spirited Christian. You just hate everybody. Because any statement in Scripture has that polemical edge to it. This is the truth. That means anything that contradicts it is a lie and is wrong. That's what a polemic is. So as I pointed out in Genesis chapter 1, if you read that and you were steeped in Canaanite mythology or Babylonian mythology or Egyptian mythology, then what you would hear is a a refutation of everything you believe about creation and the origins of creation. And creation and origin stories are called a cosmogony, G-O-N-Y. The study of creation or origin stories is called cosmology. It's the study of how the cosmos came into existence. But cosmogonies are the stories about how it came into existence. So one of the greatest um, polemics in the scripture is in Exodus. So let's start off, though, by going to Exodus chapter 4. Some interesting things that go on in Exodus chapter 4, because in, you know, in chapter 3, Moses sees the burning bush, goes over there, and God begins to talk to him, and so he begins to have this conversation with God. Notice he didn't say, well, I didn't know you existed. Prove you're really God. He, he doesn't, doesn't do that. And uh, that's called the self-authenticating voice of God. When God speaks, everybody listens, and they know it's God because his voice carries its own self-authentication with it. You know it's God's voice. When Isaiah shows up in the throne room of God, he realizes where he is, falls on his face, and says, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. You immediately know. There, there's no hiding it. There's no atheists that show up in the presence of God. So Moses has had this initial talk. God is commissioning him to go to Egypt and to deliver his countrymen and then in verse 1 of chapter 4, we read, Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they won't believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. What if they say you're just a liar? See, maybe you've been called that as a Christian in your witness. You're just lying. You're just making this stuff up. Christianity is just a myth. I'm not going to believe you. You can't convince me of anything. That's what, um, that's what Moses is saying. What if I go there and they say, prove it. We don't believe you. So the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? And he said, a rod. Cast it on the ground and cast it on the ground. It became a serpent. What's God doing? He's supplying evidence to Moses for his claim that God sent him. See, God does believe in using evidences. It's how it's used. <coughs> the evidence is not going to be treated in a neutral fashion any more than the opponents of Moses, the Pharaoh and his magicians, are going to be treated as if they if they are morally or spiritually neutral. They are sub truth suppressors, and they've erected a whole sophisticated um, array of gods and goddesses, a whole pantheon, of gods and goddesses to explain everything in life without referring to the God of, of creation. And so Moses is going to go to confront them. Now also notice in verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, now reach out, grab the uh, serpent by the tail. And he caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. So what God is saying is that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. 
notice he's God's the evidence isn't there to support the thesis that there might be a generic deity we're not going to give evidence that maybe there is a God it is to present the case of the biblical holy creator God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob that he is the one so that that's another problem in the way classic apologists and evidentialists approach and use evidence, it only gets you to probability and only gets you to a God or a deity. It doesn't get you to the holy creator God of the heavens and the earth who is the God of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's what's going on. That is what God commissions um, commissions Moses to do then God sends him there and as he announces to Pharaoh that he is there so that Pharaoh will release God's people what's the purpose of the confrontation the purpose of the confrontation is not to bring judgment on the house of Pharaoh and to destroy Pharaoh not initially the purpose of the confrontation is to convince Pharaoh that he needs to change his mind the purpose of the confrontation is, isn't to prove that Moses is power, Moses is right. Moses has has, you know, finally one-upped uh, the 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 current Pharaoh. The purpose is to convince the Pharaoh that he's wrong and to get him to change. So the point of the challenge between divine viewpoint and human viewpoint is to get the unbeliever to change. So you don't want to be angry. You don't want to be uh, argumentative. You want, don't want to be disrespectful. You want to, in fear and in humility, present the truth and help them. And it may take time to walk them through, uh, through the issues. It took 10 encounters with Pharaoh. Now, here's a chart you probably can't see real well. This is from the Ryrie Study Bible. So if you've got a Ryrie Study Bible, this is the uh, revised editions that were expanded that came out in the late, uh, in the 90s, I believe. And what this shows is that you have the 10 plagues. But these 10 plagues weren't just nasty things God decided would be really good to just create havoc in the Egyptian society. Each one of these is designed to um, counter Egyptian gods and goddesses. It's a polemic. It's to say, God says, I'm the God of the Nile. I'm going to turn it to blood. And your God, Hapi, who's the spirit of the Nile, and Kanum, the guardian of the Nile, don't have anything to say about it. I'm going to kick their butt and turn the water into blood. That's what's going on. God is showing he is the one in charge. Okay? So, that you probably can't read. I just wanted to show you that. This list is one I took. I tried to copy a chart, but it didn't work, so I had to cut and paste it. But this is from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Some of you have the Bible Knowledge Commentary put out by uh, Dallas Seminary. And this is a, a, a chart that's in there. Uh, comes from that. The Nile turned to blood, it's described in Exodus seven fourteen to 25, is a direct polemic against the power of the god Hapi, also called Apis, the bull god, the god of the Nile, and Isis, who's the goddess of the Nile, as well as Kanum, who was represented by a ram and is the guardian of the Nile, as well as possibly some others. So, the Nile turning to blood is a confrontation against certain of the Egyptian gods. The second plague, the plague of the frogs. Now, what happens when you watch the Discovery Channel or you watch the History Channel, they try to give a naturalistic explanation for all of this. There's a volcano that goes off up in the, uh, up in the Mediterranean and all of that ash goes in the air and it comes down, it lands in the water, makes it look like blood, and then because the water is going bad, then frogs come out. And they have a naturalist strength because their presupposition is that it can't, there's no supernatural interference in human history. 
God does can't do that because presuppositionally they've decided God really does. These are just religious stories about the Hebrew deity. They don't represent truth. I spent an hour today at lunch watching the Discovery Channel on the crucifixion of Jesus. It's tough being a pastor and having to watch. But they were making really good historical points about crucifixion, but their framework for the whole thing is is terrible. Okay, frogs. Uh, Hecate is the goddess of birth. She's represented with a frog's head. Hopi, the god of the Nile. The frogs come out of the Nile, so this is, again, a polemic against those gods' gnats. Um, This is against Set, the god of the desert. That's where the gnats came from. Flies, uh, probably a polemic against the sun god. There's a connection there with a fly, represented by a fly, or the god, uh, Uachit, who's possibly represented by a fly. Then the fifth plague is the death of the livestock. You have the goddess uh, Hathor, who is represented with the cow's head, and Apis, the bull god, a symbol of fertility. So when the livestock is attacked, the, the god and goddess of cows and bulls can't do anything about it. Boils. This would uh, be a polemic against Sekhmet, the goddess who had power over disease. And Sunu, the pestilence god, and Isis, the goddess of healing, they were, they were impotent against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because he's the creator God who controls the details and they're, they're, they're useless. They're impotent. They can't do anything. Then there was hail. This was an, uh, uh, a polemic against uh, Newt, the sky goddess, Osiris, the god of crops and fertility because the hail wiped out the crops. If you think about the economic catastrophe in those ten plagues, it's a wonder that the Egyptians survived at all. They're not mentioned for 500 years or so in in the biblical account because they have to rebuild their whole civilization. They're they're just devastated. Their military is wiped out. Their agriculture is wiped out. Their their economy is wiped out. uh, Their their education system is wiped out. The firstborn who are the cream, they're the ones who would get all the education. They're wiped out. So it's devastating to them. Uh, locusts, this again is a attack on Newt, the sky goddess, and Osiris, the god of crops and fertility. Uh, darkness would be a polemic against Bray, the sun god, Horus, a sun god, Newt, the sky goddess, and Hathor, a sky goddess. So so God multitasks. He's got one plague, and it takes, on, takes out four or five god, gods or goddesses at the same time. And then you have the last one, the death of the firstborn, which is an assault on men, the god of reproduction, and Heket, the goddess who attended women at childbirth, Isis, the god, goddess who protected children, and Pharaoh's firstborn son is considered to be a god. Pharaoh is considered to be the incarnation of a god, so is his son, and so by God taking out the son of Pharaoh, it is demonstrating he's not a god at all, God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Moses, he is God. That's the point. It is a polemic. God is arguing his case. I'm God, and you need to listen to me. And it's not, um, it's not all Pollyanna feel-good and feathers. So what do we learn from looking at the Exodus account? First of all, they had a religious system. They had a really sophisticated religious system, they believe there is something higher than man. They believe there are, there's a creator being or beings. They have rejected the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the holy creator God of, of the universe, and substituted something else. They're worshiping, in the words of Paul in Romans 1, the creation rather than the creator, and they're worshiping animals and things, uh, it, that God created. They're truth suppressors. So that, what God is doing is he is showing, he's not saying you're wrong to worship gods and goddesses, you've just got the wrong ones. Your system fails. And that's part of what you can do when you're talking to somebody, is asking them questions. Like I've asked this before, and people say, well, uh, you're a Christian, how can you believe in a good God when all these horrible things happen? Hmm, 
I'm not going to answer that. How do you explain the existence of evil? You know, let them wrestle with it because they have no, they can't even use the word evil. If they don't believe in a God, they believe everything happens by chance and everything is good. It's all, it may be relative. Some things are nicer than other things. Some things are worse than other things, but they can't, they have no right to talk about justice and good and right because as far as they're concerned, everything is just an accident. So how can you, and, and if they believe in the survival of the fittest, if they believe that, that that's how you go from a lower order to a higher order is that, that those who are fitter take out those who are less fit, that's a, the struggle for, for, for survival, and that doesn't seem to be very fair or just or right. That, that's going to bring a lot of evil on people. So how can you justify that? So let them wrestle with things and just ask the right questions. Second, we learned that people are not morally or spiritually neutral. They've already substituted a God. And what we can do when we talk to people, now, now some people don't need this conversation, other people do, is you can help them understand that they have a spiritual commitment to something, that that they they, at bottom line, uh, there's a line towards the end of uh, the case for Christ where uh, Lee Strobel has gone to sort of this Gnostic uh, atheist mentor that he's had that's an older man, and the guy tells him, says, well, you've got to ultimately realize that that everything is based on belief. You believe that there's no God. You believe that in a natural explanation of everything, or you can believe in some religion, but ultimately it always comes down to belief and you have to make your choice. And sometimes that's what we have to do is help people understand that that when it comes down to believing scientific evidence, or the evidence doesn't speak for itself, they're believing it. It's ultimately an issue of faith. Third, we see that the purpose of the confrontation is to change Pharaoh's mind. The purpose that we're having a conversation with somebody is not to prove we're right or we're smarter or we have all the answers. It's to show them the love that God has for them, and they will never see it more clearly than you or less clearly than you. Okay? We are the visible witness to the love and grace of God when we're talking to an unbeliever. Fourth, God directly challenges the false religious systems and demonstrates their impotence. Now, that really runs counter in, a, in our postmodern snowflake culture because we, part of what we do in witnessing is we're showing that somebody's wrong. And for a lot of people in our postmodern snowflake culture, proving that somebody's wrong is just, just it, it's blowing a whistle and saying, everybody go to your safe space. Go hide. The, the boogeyman's here, and he's telling us we're wrong. We can't handle it. Interesting how Satan has, has developed these cultural trends. God directly challenged. It is a godly thing to confront somebody with the fallaciousness of their belief. But we do it in goodness, kindness, and in fear and humility. We don't do it in a... Uh, I mean, God can bring out the baseball bat and hit him over the head, but that's not our role. Part of what we can do when we're witnessing is show the inadequacies of their own belief system. That's what happens with the Egyptians. That's what's going to happen when we come back next time and look at Elijah. Is he showing that the, that the pagan system ultimately doesn't work? Sixth, we see that the plagues provide historic facts and evidence to expose their sin and rebellion against God. In fact, there's no, I don't think there's any other event in the Old Testament that is repeated and referred back to as much as the Exodus event. God believes in the use of evidence. It's how you use it. And then last, the unbeliever is not in neutral ignorance, but willful ignorance. The bottom line is volition. 
that he's got a choice to make. He chooses what to believe and what not to believe. And our role is we can't convince him. We can present the truth, but it's God the Holy Spirit's role to convince them of, of the truth. So with that, we've gone through the Exodus event. Next time we'll come back and we'll look at, at what happens on Mount Carmel with, with Elijah. From there, what we'll do is we'll go to the New Testament. We'll look just briefly at the Gospels, um, about as briefly. I, I, I didn't touch on Job, did I? Let me, let's go to Job for just a minute. I skipped over Job. Let's look at Job. Um, I just got distracted with Exodus. But look at Job. Job, Job, is, Job has all these horrible things happen to him at the beginning of Job. And his three friends are all coming with their human viewpoint. And eventually they convince Job that, well, maybe God really doesn't have your best interests in mind. And so Job basically in chapter uh, 37 is, is arguing for God to come and, and talk to him. So God shows up at the beginning of chapter 38. And in 38 and 39, God just asks questions. One question after another, at least 53 questions that I've been able to identify. I just went through the text and looked at all, counted the question marks. It's uh, nothing more difficult than that because some of these questions are multiverse questions. So it's about 53 to 55 questions. And the bottom line is God gets pretty much into the details and say, how, how, how can you even talk? How can, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who put a thought in your mind? Uh, can you explain any of these things? And basically he points out that, that Job, Job may know a lot, but he doesn't know much. That God, God has infinite knowledge. And he's pointing out to Job that, that even if I told you all the reasons why I allowed this suffering to come, you couldn't comprehend it. You can't comprehend how a thought is formed in your brain. How do you think you can comprehend the reason behind your suffering? You can't do it. And so it convicts Job, and we get to chapter 40, and Job answers the Lord in verse 4. He says, Behold, I'm vile. What shall I answer you? I put my hand over my mouth. You have shut me up, God. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. He said, You shut me down. I, I can't say anything. I realize how ignorant I am and that I can't understand. I couldn't understand it even if you answered my questions. So this was God's challenge uh, challenge to Job. So the only thing to point out there is how questions can be asked to bring people to a point of self-realization. So, so far what we've done is we've looked at the creation account in Genesis 1. We've looked at the fall confrontation of God with fallen man in Genesis 3. We've looked at the Exodus account where you have the polemic against the uh, polygamy, I mean, not polygamy, the um, <clears throat> polytheism of the, uh, of the Egyptians. And we looked at Job and the importance of answering, asking questions. Again and again, we see this, this questioning, questioning. And so next time we'll come back, look at the last thing in, in uh, the Old Testament, last event I want to talk about, which is Elijah. Then we'll go to the New Testament. We'll look quickly at, at the Gospels. Everything Jesus does is a confrontation. And it's really interesting, and, but we've done a lot of that in Matthew. And then we'll talk about two events in Acts, Acts 14 and Acts 17. And then when I wrap up, what I want to do is go through and give, just summarize some tight arguments, some tight evidence that, that I think is good to know. Just how... What's the evidence for the truthfulness of the Bible? What is the evidence for the crucifixion? What's the evidence for the resurrection? What's the evidence for, for, for miracles? Just, just some things that, that every Christian, four or five things, every Christian ought to have a good grasp of in talking to unbelievers that may raise questions in these areas. And that'll probably take about three more weeks, and then we'll be back in forward, uh, forward momentum in First Peter. Father, thank you for this opportunity to think through these things this evening and to um, 
begin to realize that there are certain certain traits, certain characteristics of uh, <clears throat> that should be present when we're talking to, with unbelievers and we are giving an answer for the hope that is in us. Uh, it's a tool in evangelism to help us more clearly express the truth of the gospel. We're not just wanting people to believe in a God or a possible resurrection, but we have the confidence that you are the creator God, the holy creator God of the universe who sent your son to die on the cross for our sins and he was raised from the dead, a victor over death, and that that victory is ours if we believe in him. And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and have the courage to go through the process of communicating with unbelievers and, um, and help to explain the gospel to them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.